ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to PM. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. Tonight, interest rates on hold again, but the Reserve Bank Governor warns more work is needed to bring down inflation in her first ever Rates Day press conference. Also, West Australian farmers furious as 15,000 sheep and cattle continue to languish on a ship off the coast. And the King's cancer diagnosis. How much of the royal workload can he continue to tackle? He has constitutional duties, so he is receiving those red boxes from government every day, having to sign off laws, having to look at briefing documents. He will still be doing that. Thanks for your company. The monthly interest rate pain being felt by millions of mortgage borrowers remains locked in stasis for another month at least as the Reserve Bank left the cash rate unchanged today. At least it didn't get worse. But for the first time, today's decision came with a live broadcast press conference. The RBA Governor, Michelle Bullock, facing questions and explaining the bank's decision. Governor Bullock made clear the fight against inflation is not over, stressing she couldn't rule in or out further interest rate rises. Here's David Taylor. The room was abuzz with anticipation. Then a hushed silence as 45 journalists at RBA headquarters in Sydney's Martin Place sat up straight, eagerly awaiting the first words from RBA Governor... Michelle Bullock. Hi. (laughs) This is her opportunity to explain why the central bank left its cash rate target, or interest rates, unchanged at 4.35%. She went straight to explaining the big picture. Inflation is too high and there's a risk it'll stay too high. So for all of these reasons, the board's going to continue to monitor the data closely and we'll do what we need to ensure that the economy remains on track for inflation to return to target while holding on to as many gains in the employment uh, in the labour market as we can. It's tricky. The Reserve Bank has one tool, interest rates. When it raises interest rates and keeps them up, those paying off mortgages, which is a third of all households, have less money to spend in the economy. Over time, the bank says, this reduced spending helps bring inflation down. And the best thing that we can do with our tool is um, help households deal with the cost of living by getting inflation down. That's our aim. We want it back in the background again. But getting inflation in the background, as she says, remains a distant prospect. As it is, the RBA is publicly stating interest rates could go up or down from here, which is confusing for even the sharpest economic minds. We are not ruling out what we might have to do next. We're not ruling in or out anything. And Michelle Bullock says she gets it. People are frustrated about the cost of living and all the uncertainty that comes with it. I really understand that the mortgage holders are sweating on this. I do understand that. But the big issue that's confronting not just mortgage holders, but everyone, is inflation. And the fact that inflation is so high in so many parts of their lives at the moment is really what's hurting them. 
Carlos Cacho is the chief economist of Jardin. He says services inflation, so things like eating out and buying insurance, is still too high. That, he says, is the thorn in the RBA's side. In a lot of areas, you know, rents are still rising at not far off double digits, insurance premiums, as everyone's experiencing utilities. Um, and, you know, you add to that the uncertainty globally, you know, look at what's happening in the Red Sea now, impacting shipping costs. Um, the outlook for the Chinese economy. What about the prospect of stage three tax cuts adding to inflation? What's your view on that? Look, I think at the margin, it will be a little bit more inflationary. Is that why the Reserve Bank is hesitant to cut rates now? I don't think it's playing directly too much into their hearing, but I do think, you know, the the overall spending of the public sector is certainly playing into the RBA's thinking, and we can see that in um, you know, in the investment side, in, in in infrastructure, where the huge pipeline of work is meaning that construction costs for houses, despite um, you know, essentially a kind of looming recession in home building, um, we're not seeing construction costs go down. Um, in fact, they're still rising at mid single digits. Michelle Bullock says the inflation outlook will depend on how Australians spend their money and whether they save up for the fun stuff, like for example, a pop concert. On Taylor Swift. Team- I'd say that uh, from my own experience is that um, uh, my kids uh, put money away to do it. They, they forewent other things in order to be able to afford uh, Taylor Swift. So I think there's also um, issues. People are deciding what's really important to them and what's not as important to them. And clearly a lot of people, Taylor Swift is very important. <laughs> But there is one thing that really keeps Michelle Bullock up at night, and that's mass job losses if interest rates need to go higher. So I think the thing that worries me is that we get some more shocks and we don't know where they're coming from. You look at the last few years, pandemic, Ukraine, Middle East, um, what's going to come from left field? That's what worries me. What I don't know is coming and what the implications of that might be for inflation and inflation expectations and how do we handle it. The RBA next meets to decide on interest rates in six weeks' time. David Taylor there. Well, more now on the government's Stage 3 income tax changes. They are set to become law after the opposition confirmed it would support the package in Parliament. After two weeks attacking the Prime Minister over his broken tax promise... Opposition leader Peter Dutton folded on the first parliamentary sitting day of the year and promised not to stand in the way. But he is promising a policy for even more tax relief before the election. National Affairs Editor Melissa Clark is in our Parliament House studio. Mel, this mustn't have been easy for the Coalition. They've ultimately decided to help kill off their own tax policy here. What's Peter Dutton's justification for that? You're right. This is very awkward for the Coalition. They obviously want to maintain that their policy, the already legislated Stage 3 tax cuts, is the superior policy. But if they were to insist on that, they would firstly be denying tax relief to low and middle income earners in the midst of a cost of living crisis. And secondly, they'd be abandoning the Liberal Party's long-held pledge to always be the party of lower taxes. So it's been a difficult position for the Coalition to settle on. They've had a shadow cabinet meeting yesterday and meetings of all nationals and Liberal MPs today and the Coalition have decided they won't vote against Labor's planned changes. They will try to amend them, but they haven't said how. It's pretty messy. Effectively, they've agreed that the policy need for tax relief for low and middle income earners is there, but politically they don't want to agree with Labor. So that's meant that we've had the emphasis from the opposition leader, Peter Dutton, 
really focusing instead on the broken promise and he's really ramping up that attack. I think, again, Australians have been shocked to know that they've got a liar in the lodge and they've got a Prime Minister who looks the Australian public in the eye uh, and is prepared to lie to them. He promised on 97 occasions that power prices would come down by $275. He's never mentioned that figure since the election. Uh, he promised on The Voice that he would give the detail to the Australian public. The Prime Minister deliberately deceived the Australian public on The Voice, deliberately deceived the Australian public in relation to bringing down energy costs, and he's deceived the public in relation to the tax cuts, which he promised on more than 100 occasions. Peter Dutton there this morning, and there's a lot of contentious claims in that statement there, but you can see the point that he is trying to focus on, which is to focus on the integrity issue rather than the policy question at the heart of the tax changes. So the Coalition isn't opposing this legislation, but it is indicating it wants amendments and is promising it'll have more to offer on income tax before the election. So is this still going to be an issue come the next election? Well, the Coalition's saying it's not walking away from the principle of the Stage 3 tax cuts. So it appears to be leaving open the possibility of taking a policy to the next election to cut out an entire tax bracket, which is fundamentally what Stage 3 was meant to do. This would cost a lot more and it I think it really remains to be seen whether the Coalition is confident that more tax cuts wouldn't leave a big hole in the budget. But I think it's interesting here also to look at the Labor side. Anthony Albanese really seems to want a fight over the tax cuts more than he wants them locked in and moved on from by the time the next election comes around. Uh, today he was effectively daring Peter Dutton and the Coalition to oppose him. If they are fair income, then their response must be to not only oppose uh, what we are putting forward with our legislation we'll introduce today, but to promise to roll it back. Unless they do that, then it's all just wind. It's all just politics. That's the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. So, Mel, all of this does seem to have put a spring in the Prime Minister's step if question time was any indication. Certainly. Look, without a doubt, Labor has been buoyed by having something to offer households that are doing it tough. And they're undoubtedly happy to have put the, the opposition in an awkward position of having to back or at least not oppose the changes. One Labor backbencher told me that they see this as a reversal of fortunes, that when the coalition initially announced stages one, two and three of its income tax changes, Labor opposed these stage three tax cuts but ended up waiving it through Parliament because they didn't want to be accused of denying low- and middle-income earners a tax cut under stages one and two, which happened a couple of years ago now. Uh, that Labor backbencher is now seeing the shoe on the other foot and they see that uh, changing stage three tax cuts is a policy win with a, a great big dollop of political schadenfreude on the side. Melissa Clark there. Well, the Shadow Minister for Finance is Senator Jane Hume and she joined me earlier. Senator Hume, thanks for being with us. I think the question that most people have in their minds is how can the opposition be so irate about the Prime Minister's broken promise but still committed to waiving that broken promise through Parliament? David, the Prime Minister's lies and that broken promise 
means that delivering the stage three tax reforms as they're currently legislated, as they're currently funded, and as they're currently due to start on the 1st of July 2024, is now impossible. And these were really significant reforms. They were reforms that were calibrated very carefully, stage one, stage two, and stage three. And that has now been ditched. That's been dumped. So the appetite for genuine tax reform has completely gone from this government. Now, the coalition is always going to be committed to lower taxes, to lower, to simpler and to fairer taxes, which is why we won't oppose the reduction in that 19 cents tax rate to 16 cents in the dollar. However, the coalition is very much committed to going to the next election with a tax reform package that is in keeping with the stage three reforms that will deliver those lower, simpler, fairer taxes, but will also fight bracket creep. I do want to get to to those elements. Hard work and opportunity. I just want to stick on this broken promise element because for the last two and a bit weeks, the opposition has been hammering the government over this and continues to do so. Should the Prime Minister have broken this promise? He's lied to the Australian people. He's looked Australians in the eye He has had nearly two years in government. If he was genuine about the cost of living and addressing the cost of living, he could have done this two years ago. Indeed, he went into the last election saying that the cost of living was the number one issue for ordinary Australians and yet at the same time still committed to delivering those stage three tax cuts, to delivering to, tax reform, to backing to them, them in. You're, you're, you're now committed to backing this broken promise in. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, you know, haven't you ditched the stage three tax cuts as well, the original No, package? we are absolutely committed to delivering reform. There is no doubt about that and we will take that to the next election. We'll deliver on the commitment to lower, simpler and fairer taxes. We'll enshrine that aspiration into this tax system, but most importantly, we will do that in a way that is fully costed, that goes through the appropriate process, which we, which we know Labor did not do. They circumvented Cabinet and, and the Expenditure Review Committee to make this decision. They carved out so many Cabinet ministers because clearly they didn't trust them not to leak. But most importantly, we will also make sure that when we do that, when we come to the Australian electorate, we will seek a mandate and it will provide for Australia's future security and it will guarantee essential services. Is your preference to bring back all the elements of the package that you have now helped throw overboard? Well, we would love to do that. However, as I said earlier, stage one, stage two and stage three was a very carefully calibrated and carefully timed package. The calibration and the timing of that package has been dumped by Anthony Albanese, despite promising more than 100 times that he would he would press on with it. So now we have to recalibrate, but we will commit to those lower and simpler fairer taxes because without that we're not going to be able to inject that you know turbocharge the economy bring back economic growth that doesn't simply rely on migration bring back productivity so that we can all have wage rises that aren't inflationary when you talk about a simpler tax system is the coalition committed to removing that 37% tax rate or do you now accept it's important to keep that in the income 
tax system to keep it progressive. Removing that 37% tax bracket was one of the most important elements of the entire personal income tax plan, stage one, stage two, stage three, because it meant that anybody earning between $45,000 and $200,000 would never be subject to bracket creep. And bracket creep is pernicious. It is the tax that you don't know you're getting. Bracket creep robs your future future prosperity, which is why it is so important to bring those tax brackets, to make those tax brackets simpler and fairer, because it makes all Australians wealthier in the end. Jane Hume, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for talking to us. Great to be with you, David. And Senator Jane Hume is the Shadow Minister for Finance. You are listening to PM. My name is David Lipson. The King has cancer. Those are the words scrawled across the front pages of multiple British newspapers today. Speculation is mounting over which members of the royal family will step into King Charles's public-facing duties following the diagnosis. It's the latest in a spate of ill health announcements for several members of the monarchy. But some commentators suggest the diagnosis could repair a growing rift between Princes William and Harry. Elizabeth Cramsey reports. Just last week, King Charles was in hospital receiving treatment for an enlarged prostate. But during that time, a separate issue of concern was identified. The palace now announcing the king has cancer. It's a move royal commentator Angela Mollard says is unprecedented. It was only a couple of years ago that the late Queen went into hospital and uh, the media was briefed that she was unwell. There was no uh, knowledge that she was in hospital and the palace were roundly criticised for not being open and honest about the fact she had actually gone into hospital for treatment. The statement says King Charles is sharing the information to assist the public's awareness of cancer. Ms Mollard says it's already making a difference. I think the King thus far has been enormously uh, open and frank about his condition. He wants, he knows that, for instance, the NHS had, an, I think it was 11 times the number of searches for prostate cancer and prostate conditions on its website following the King's uh, statement. And I think going forward, uh, depending on his treatment, depending on how his family uh Feels and of course the prognosis in a, uh, on the ongoing prognosis will determine uh, the transparency going forward. My Krishnasamy is an internationally recognised cancer nurse and professor of cancer nursing in the School of Health Sciences at the University of Melbourne. She welcomes the King's transparency. Very brave to see the King being so open about his recent cancer diagnosis. I think for society as a whole, the more that we can talk about cancer and be comfortable acknowledging when we notice a change in our body in any way, the better and the sooner people can get treatment for their cancer and, of course, then have better outcomes. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has voiced his support for King Charles, as has the opposition leader Peter Dutton, who suggested it was a reminder to all men to pay more attention to their own health. But with Princess Kate dealing with her own health issues in a famously slimmer monarchy, what does it mean for the King's duties? Juliet Reedon is the ABC's royal commentator. 
he has uh, constitutional duties. So he is receiving those red boxes from government every day, having to sign off laws, having to look at briefing documents. He will still be doing that, I understand. He also meets with the prime minister once a week. Uh, and I understand he will still be doing that. But on top of that, there are all the public engagements that he makes. Um, these happen every day, uh, sometimes several every day. Uh, he won't be able to do that. He won't be able to go out in public. So those engagements will have to be postponed or cancelled or another member of the royal family will step in. She says Prince William will be stepping up. Prince William already does investitures. I think he might be doing a few more. Charles's sister, Princess Anne, she will also she also does investitures and she will step in. You know, she is famously uh, uh, if you count up the duties, the hardest working royal, she has usually most years, she does the most number of duties and she will probably be adding to that in this time. Also, Queen Camilla, she will be stepping in and doing some more roles. She's been out and about a lot this week. She has said that she will continue a full roster of engagements and I suspect a few extra ones will sneak in there as well. Juliet Reedon says the diagnosis could bridge the rift between Prince Harry and his brother. Prince Harry has opted to fly to his father's side from America. So, uh, you know, it's at times like these when uh, family rifts are put to one side and uh, the importance of uh, your father going through cancer treatment comes first. That's Juliet Reedon ending that report from Elizabeth Cramsey. The Queensland government is resisting pressure for a tougher crackdown on youth crime in the wake of the shocking stabbing death of a grandmother in an alleged carjacking near Brisbane at the weekend. A 16-year-old boy charged with murder faced court and was remanded in custody today. Four others aged 15 and 16 face lesser offences. The National Children's Commissioner has also weighed in, calling on politicians to craft a national plan to address youth crime and the justice system. Jacqueline Breen reports. Outside the Red Bank Plains shopping centre in Ipswich, the pile of flowers and candles is still growing and these shoppers are still in shock. Me and my husband, we saw the police coming in. About an hour later, somebody told us that a woman had been stabbed. Awful. There's still a lot of crime in the area, so, you know... I feel safer that they're behind bars now, yeah. This morning, Queensland Police Detective Acting Superintendent Heath McQueen confirmed more arrests were made overnight. Four more youth, uh, three 16-year-olds and a 15-year-old, um, and uh, one of those youth, a 16-year-old, has been charged with murder. The other teens were charged with unlawful use of a motor vehicle. Police aren't ruling out further arrests and thanked the community for its help so far. A number of these youth were brought in with parents um, um, so you know and uh, they are, are condemned the behaviour and what's occurred here. Senior police from Ipswich District met with uh, senior uh, members from the African community last night. They condemn what's occurred here. You know this is a horrendous crime now is a time for us to support Violene's family and uh, ensure that uh, we hold the perpetrators to account. In a courtroom closed to the media, the 16-year-old charged with murder was remanded in custody. 
unable to apply for bail because of the seriousness of the charge. The Premier, Stephen Miles, was asked at the Queensland Press Club today whether he'd be taking tougher laws to this year's election. What I've said is that we will consistently take the advice of the police and if they need uh, tougher laws, they'll get those laws. But he had this to say about the opposition's call to end the use of detention only as a last resort. All of the evidence suggests that if you detain offenders for low-level offences... You expose them to hardened criminals, you expose them to gangs, you make it much more likely they will reoffend. So that LNP policy is incredibly dangerous. Benny Boll is a former youth worker and president of Queensland's African Communities Council. The community is grieving and condemning what has happened, including the, the families of those young people who have been arrested. They are so... Shocked. And he says people are afraid and upset by a barrage of abuse aimed at their communities. Probably more than 50 incidents of racial abuse or attack over the past 24 hours. Reports of incidents from everywhere and many parents have been calling me that their children are refusing to go to school because of fear for their safety, uh, given what they're reading on social media. So this a whole lot of pain. This is a, an absolutely unspeakable tragedy and my heart just breaks for, for all the family and the friends of the victim. Anne Hollands is the National Children's Commissioner. She's been speaking with communities across the country about high rates of youth crime and problems with the justice system, especially in Queensland, the Northern Territory and WA. The systems we have in place are not working and I think that's something that everyone agrees uh, unfortunately, what what sometimes happens is that there is a knee-jerk reaction and, in fact, Queensland uh, already has amongst the toughest laws in the country. I think the fact that we have problems in a number of jurisdictions, of course, Queensland is not alone in these problems, says to me that there is an argument for bringing all the jurisdictions together with some leadership from the Commonwealth Government. We don't have any national approach to this at this stage and that's unlike other problems like for domestic violence we have a national plan. Unfortunately uh, issues affecting children like this really are not amplified at the national federation level. That's National Children's Commissioner Anne Holland, Jacqueline Breen, our reporter there. A livestock ship that was destined for the Middle East but forced to turn back to Western Australia last month remains at the centre of a heated debate as authorities scramble to find a solution. It's still not clear what will happen to the thousands of sheep and cattle on board after plans for a new shipping route were rejected. While the industry and animal welfare groups disagree on live exports, they are united in their anger over how long this ordeal is taking. And as Isabel Musali reports, there are now calls for the federal government to intervene. With the federal government committed to banning live sheep exports, the industry is waiting to be told how a phase-out will work. Some are still pushing for a reversal of that controversial plan. But for now, there's a more pressing issue. The fate of thousands of sheep and cattle left in limbo on a ship off the coast of Fremantle in Western Australia. Independent MP Andrew Wilkie today called on the federal government to intervene. There is an urgent need to address this crisis and this parliament cannot wait one moment longer to do just that. Here we have approximately 15,000 animals, mostly sheep, although about, including about 2,500 uh, uh, head of cattle, 
who have already been afloat for some 30 days in the stifling heat of WA, and they've travelled across the, uh, the equator and back to the stifling heat of WA. Deputy Speaker, the conditions on this vessel are already well known to all of us, and it beggars belief that we even have to have a debate about doing something urgently about the conditions on this vessel. Last month, the MV Bahija was ordered to return to Australia due to security concerns in the Red Sea. The exporter's next plan was to use a different and much longer route via southern Africa. But the Department of Agriculture yesterday rejected that plan and pledged to reveal the reasons soon. Agriculture Minister Murray Watt maintains the decision was made independently and says he won't speculate on the future of the animals because that's up to the exporter. But he's hit back at criticism over how long the animals have remained on board. What I think that fails to understand is firstly that it is the exporter's responsibility, not the departments, not anyone in government, it's the exporter's responsibility to come up with a plan for what it intends to do with livestock that it has decided to export. Uh, and as I said earlier, uh, the department ordered uh, the ship to turn around uh, on the 19th of January. It was not until the 29th of January, 10 days later, that the exporter even provided a proposal for what it intended to do next. And ever since receiving that proposal, the department has worked, as I say, around the clock uh, to get this resolved. John Hassel from the WA Farmers Federation is among those putting the blame on authorities. Paralysis by indecision. It's just a, a, an appalling situation uh, where the goalposts have been shifted in a fairly massive way. There was a contingency plan in place. If that was allowed to go, then the animals probably would be very close to being unloaded by now, uh, you know, even though they'd gone around the cage. So I think this decision by the, by the Federal Department um, to turn it back was, was one thing, but then nearly 21 days to make a decision about not, not allowing it to sail again is, is pretty appalling. Public our view is that those animals need to come off the ship here in Australia and be dealt with humanely here in Australia as quickly as possible. That's Ben Cave, the CEO of RSPCAWA. He's welcomed the rejection of the new plan but says it's incredibly disappointing the animals are still in limbo. Look, I think statistically the longer the sheep are on the ship, that more will perish. So certainly... You know, we're relieved that that ship isn't going on a 30-day voyage now around the Cape of Good Hope, and it's imperative to get those, ship off, those sheep off as quickly as possible. While some deaths have been recorded, Curtin University Associate Professor Liz Jackson cautions that's to be expected from a standard journey. She says right now there's no reason to believe these deaths are suspicious, but the supply chain expert believes the situation must be addressed soon. It's an unacceptable waiting game, um, these, these livestock something needs to happen to them. Um, and um, in the future, we need uh, we, we need to have um, better systems in place to make sure that these types of situations, which I'll be so bold as to say um, is a crisis, need to be handled better. That's Associate Professor Liz Jackson ending that report by Isabel Musali. And that's the program for today. Thanks for joining us here at PM. I'm David Lipson. You can find all of our interviews and reports on the PM webpage if you want to share them. You can also catch the program live or later on the ABC Listen app. We will be back at the same time tomorrow. Until then, have a great night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. 
When the Reserve Bank board members meet for the first time this year, they might be patting each other on the back. Inflation has come right down to a two-year low, meaning they won't need to raise interest rates again. Today, ABC TV's finance expert, Alan Kohler, on what needs to happen now for rates to start falling. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.